The broad market averages are off to a very healthy start for 2023, but looking under the hood reveals that the vast majority of the rise in the S&P 500 so far this year is attributable to eight giant tech stocks that now make up roughly a whopping 30% of the index. If you instead were to take the true average return of those 500 stocks on an equal weight basis, you'd find the mix would be barely up for the year. Note, we're going to be discussing several specific stocks today, but this show is for informational purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any stock or any other investment vehicle. Before taking any action based on today's discussions, please consult an advisor. And if you don't have one, feel free to reach out to any one of us at our show website, www.retirementlifestyleshow.com. Now, stay tuned as we explore this phenomenon of limited market breadth, what this might mean for the markets, and how a disciplined investor could respond right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Langani. We've got all of us back here today, Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson. We're all in the house. Adrian, how's your week been? My week's been good so far. Glad we're all here. Looking forward to today's episode. I'm really excited. Eric, how about you? We missed you last week. I missed you guys as well last week. I had a fantastic set of meetings, but I know this, this season for me is one of a lot of travel. So on these, this summer, at least when it's going to be a little rarer for me to be here, I'm pleased that we can do so today. Yes, I, this should be a good one. How about you? Oh, everything's going great. No, no complaints on my end. I'm glad we're all to here together again today. As you said, Eric, we're going to be in and out this summer, all of us. So it's nice to have one with all three of us together. So Eric, why don't you start us off? Yeah. The topic is on market breadth. I know that topic, <laughs> the headline, or at least the label for that may not spark a lot of interest, but let me explain what that means. As we look at what's taking place in the markets right now, you've, if you're tracking, as most people do, what's taking place with the indexes, you're saying, okay, that's nice. They're headed upward. And certainly, especially that's true in the tech sector. But if we look underneath the hood and look what is the source of the increases in those index levels, we see a lot of that weight or a lot of that price movement that we're all gratified to see is being driven by a very small handful of stocks, the largest ones at the top. And what that does is, well, a case, of course, for those of us that are owning an index, then we're experiencing right along with the index itself, the benefits of that. But to the extent that we have a portfolio that consists of more than just that one part, that could be small and large and growth and value and tech and non-tech and U.S. and international and bonds and so forth. Then what we sometimes say is, hey, we're looking at our portfolio and it's not matching what we're seeing. We're not, it's not matching what we're seeing in the index and we're thinking what's wrong. And unfortunately, a lot of times misperceptions of what's taking place in the larger universe of investments as well, or stocks or bonds, 
our, and then the emotions that flow from those misperceptions can sometimes cause us at the very least just a little bit of frustration, but sometimes can drive us to, to take steps or to take actions that are driven more by our emotions than they are driven by our rational assessment of what's taking place. And usually in our experience, when we respond emotionally in the markets, it is usually counterproductive to do so. So we thought, let's take some time today and just, it doesn't need to be a long conversation, but certainly let's take a few minutes today and let's outline for you what's going on at a deeper level. Take more of an x-ray look into the markets, understand what they're telling us, that x-ray and the, and the behavior of other stocks as well, and then base our assessments of our own portfolios as well as our, setting our expectations about what might lie ahead based on that deeper analysis. So with that as a backdrop, gentlemen, what are your observations about market breadth right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good start, Eric. And just maybe giving another real life example that people may be seeing where if they're looking at their own portfolio and they're seeing themselves moving right along with the other in indexes and saying, I've got some solid returns so far this year. But if you really examine it, like you mentioned here, Eric, and you do a deep dive on seeing what's been moving in your portfolio, you might find out that it's maybe been one or two stocks that have been driving your portfolio higher, where all the other ones have just remaining flat. And that's going to be the big key here that we're going to be discussing and taking a look at today as well, where if you have a few winners that have been driving those returns this year, you might want to reevaluate, look and see, especially if these positions have grown to substantial size in your portfolio. That's something that you might want to look at just to see if you just need to reposition yourself. So I think that's a good example just to start us off with right now. It also gives us a, can be one of the many things you look at as a guide for where we're headed, right? So in general, market breadth, how many stocks are going up? And in, if you think about it, the more stocks that are going up while the market goes up, the more sustainable that is. Whereas if you've only got a couple stocks going up, well, if those couple stocks decline, then the gains for the year go down. So like this year, for example, their Bank of America strategist, his name is Michael Hartnett, calls the stocks the Magnificent Seven. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA have accounted for 84% of the NASDAQ's gain this year. That's a huge percentage of the gain concentrated in just those seven companies. And it's driven by what Adrian, you and I talked about last week, that one of our things we touched on, which was AI, right? Artificial intelligence. That's really the boom that's driving these stocks. Now, there are others that are gaining. That's why this is 84% of the gains, not 100%. But you see these seven stocks are the by far vast majority of the gain. And then you can see other investors maybe trying to find opportunity elsewhere. It reminds me very similar to the Nifty 50, where that was a little bit more broader because it was 50, 50 companies doing really well, where this is just even more concentrated than ever when you're just talking about a select few that are driving the markets as well. So it's people are really looking at, is this going to continue? Should I be looking elsewhere for opportunity right now? What is it? And that's where this discussion is really the most valuable today. Yeah. 
that is really all good points. So you mentioned, Roshan, the concentration, the attribution of the much of the growth of the underlying index to those seven. What was the name you gave? It wasn't the Nifty Seven. What was it? Oh, they called the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven. And so I was going to actually include one more in that listing. So I, did you, I think, did you mention NVIDIA and Tesla? Were those included in your list? Those are both included in the list. So it's Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA. Okay. Well, there's one that I'm apparently in that review of it. Amazon, Apple, Meta, Netflix, Microsoft, it's, and Google, what, yeah, whatever it is. Netflix and, or pardon me, NVIDIA and Tesla. I should get the listed with a new acronym somehow. That group of eight, I used to use, what would what, we say? FanMag was the one I was using. Fang stocks for a while, then FanMag, and now I've got to come up with a new one. But the, those eight, aside from the influence they had in the, or the attribution of 80 for 85% of the movement of the index so far this year, they represent now 30% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500. That's a mammoth amount of that index being essentially represented by just eight stocks. At the start of the year, it was 22%. And if you think back to the start of the tech bubble back in late 1999, early 2000, it was similarly the case that five or six stocks accounted for somewhere on the order of about 20% of the index. So to now have eight stocks representing 30% of the index is just an overwhelmingly concentrated component of that index in just a handful of names, which then begs the question, if those in fact aren't, if the increases that those stocks are seeing are not fundamentally warranted and they have some sort of return to earth effect, then even if the rest of the market, the other 200, pardon me, 492 stocks that are represented in the S&P 500 were to have a recovery, what would that, what would that portend for the index as a whole? Yeah. And that therein lies the conversation, right? Is that are the, is the rest of the market going to catch up or are these stocks going to revert back to the mean and pull back? And that's, I was hoping as we selected this topic and were researching it to at least get some guidance. And I was able to find a lot of statements like narrow rallies are prone to failure or the worry is when it turns violently or such periods of overconcentration have preceded a recession. So I found a lot of statements like that, but I was unable to find great data. The one data point I did find, it said that if uh, when the S&P is near its six-month high and it's had narrow breadth in concentration of, the, of those gains, what's the returns been for the, forward, the next six months? And interestingly enough, in their worst-case scenario, well, not worst-case, let me restate that. The average return they got when it was below 60% of stocks that were positive was 0.31% positive. The median was 3.56% positive. So I found it difficult to find great data. And then the data I could find because didn't lead to the conclusion I'd expect, right? I've seen a lot of gloom and doom around this, and I'm not saying it's wrong. We'll see what, we'll see what happens. But then when I can't necessarily find great data to back it up, I question the validity of the whole conversation. So 
I'd love both either or both of your thoughts on that. Were you able to find good data or is this just something that's a popular topic to talk about, but doesn't really have much, much all sizzle, no steak, so to speak? Well, I did find one report that was in a Wall Street Journal article referencing some work that a couple of people had done at LPL, one of the larger regional brokerages in the country. Did you see that story? I did. Yeah. And so I think was there one of the reference points that they used was, what is the number of stocks that are above their 200-day moving average? And when it's not more than 45% of all stocks that are above that 200-day moving average, then that's in the sub in these subsequent periods, investment periods. And I think they went out as far as three years, if I recall correctly, the the markets are flatter down. <laughs> so I thought as a tendency, not as a uniform rule, as it, we're all talking about tendencies here. Was that your you, apparently you saw that story, too? Well, here's what I took from it. And please, if I miss something, tell me, because I was really hoping to find something more than I did with this. But the line I pulled was that the S&P tends to have negative returns when fewer than 48% of stocks trade above their 200-day average, right? And we're currently at 38% of stocks. But what I didn't see out of there was any further data of, okay, well, what are these negative? Is the market up 10 and it's going to be up nine by the end of the year because of this? Is that, you know, that qualifies as negative. Well, let me let me show a chart that, that will put some of the stuff into perspective. That, I was uh, hoping are, you'd have this. <laughs> all right. Yes, Eric loves charts. So <laughs> let's let's bring this up here and we'll share this uh, Chrome tab. So or this window right here. So this is my charting program. And what this is an indicator within the particular charting program that I use that tracks all publicly traded stocks. And what, so this is not limited just to the S&P 500, but it is at any given point in time, the number of stocks that, as you had said, Roshan, were, are above their 200-day moving average. And what you can see on the right-hand side is as of where the conversation we're having this morning, this is looking back over the last year, these have risen and fallen. And certainly over the last week or so, we've seen this improve very markedly from below 35% to now 48% of all these stocks are there. That's great to see. And we've had, especially at the start of the year in late January and early February, we had as many as 65% of all stocks that were above that level. By the way, all those other spaghetti lines that you're seeing are just are moving averages of this particular indicator, not of any individual stock. But if that number, as you indicated, Roshan, is 48 from that article, then we're just a whisker above that level right now. And so I would say for all intents and purposes, that puts us still in that position where, boy, it'd be nice to see more, more happening there. Another measure of this is just to look at the S&P 500 itself. So these now, these red and green bars are the daily price movements of the S&P 500 as embodied in a particular ticker symbol, an ETF that you can actually use to, to participate in this index known as SPY. If we were to look at the index itself, it's, it's virtually the same. Here's the index itself. But as you can see on the right-hand side, or if you look going back where we were, let's say roughly a year ago on this left-hand side, middle of June or something thereabouts, until now, that's up about 17%. If we, though, then said, well, what about actually let's take that back. Let's go back to a pure year ago because there was a big 
pronounced fall in there. So if we went from, let's say, June 8th of last year to this, this, as we're having this conversation on June 7th of this year, that's about on a price level basis alone, that's about a 4.25% increase. Nice to see. But when you compare that to the index that measures those 500 and gives them equal weight, rather than allowing the top eight with 30% of the index to dominate what's taking place there, then what you see is that that group, the equal weighted version, is down almost 2%. So from up versus down, and then again, take the equal weight, you start say, all right, there's a lot less that's happening in this index than one might think. Particularly if we look at the, as we've been talking about, the tech-heavy NASDAQ, and you look at how this has been moving over that period of time, it was down more, but from one year ago, that's up 16. And if we look at these same things on a year-to-date basis, which I think is another way, since we're really having this conversation about what's taking place in 2023, we're just over five months into it, the NASDAQ on a price-level basis is up about 34% from the close of business on the first trading day of the year until where we are right now. That's up 34. But that equal weight version that I was talking about just a moment ago, if you look at where that was, again, from the close of business on January 3rd to where we're trading right now, instead of being up in the mid 30s, it's up about two. So <laughs> taking those those breadth indicators into account, I think, t- tells a very different story about where, you know, what's happening underneath the hood. Yeah, that's right, Eric. And I got to imagine a drag on that equal weight has got to just been all the talks just recently this year about the recession, not too long ago, the debt ceiling, just earnings being a mixed bag that really did weigh on some companies, not all of them, but but some of them. Whereas this, let's just isolate the tech space, which was really experiencing some strong growth because of the topic that everyone's been focused on, AI, has really just been accelerating those stocks where if you look at just the equal weight, there's some of these companies in different sectors, non-tech sectors, are just really concerned about the future, the outlook of the economy, and all that's just really weighing on that where you don't see as much of the gain. So just painting a little bit more of a picture for our viewers, just uh, the economy has definitely been one of the big aspects that weighed on some companies where tech has been more resilient in that case. And that's where you see most of the gains. And then just going back to what I originally talked about, is this going to continue? Should you look at maybe other areas that might experience some growth? Because right now you are seeing some reports coming out saying the recession might not be as bad as people are expecting. So waiting for some better data to come out might be something that people will look at when it comes to making their decision. Yeah, the recession might not be as bad. I got to give credit to Eric. I think you were one of the first in that camp. We'll see what happens. But Eric, you made that call about a year ago, I think, that we had one. It'd be a mild or a soft landing. And we're still, hopefully you're right. Hopefully that, that, that's what will be the outcome. I'll throw something out to both of you guys that's in line with this topic and get your thoughts on it. I'm not by any means saying I'm not a believer in AI, right? Just like I'm not a believer. Like I can't. I say I can't say I'm not a believer in EV or I'm not a believer in the cannabis space. Right? That you know, those are markets that are growing and so on. I bring up those in particular because what's going on right now with AI from a market perspective in these stocks 
reminds me of what happened with cannabis in, in 2018, right before approval. So we're going through in Canada and he's in 2020, right? Where you've got just this expansive growth. How this is definitely different is you've got the bigger companies, the more established companies getting the rally. That's our whole conversation today, right? Eight, eight names or seven names that are driving things, depending on whether you include Netflix or not on the list. So the question is this, the other two things I mentioned, the EV and the marijuana both crashed, right? Is that going to happen here? We don't know for sure. I would just love your thoughts and your opinions on this. I made the biggest distinction that I think is most relevant, which are established large companies are getting the rally versus these smaller names or startups where there'll be consolidation or going out of business. But please let me know your thoughts. Ooh, that's a toughie. I recognize that there's more, much more reading I have to do in this area. I would think that the consequence of AI it can be discussed in at least two ways. One is what happens with those individual companies that manage to harness it successfully or commercialize it in one fashion or another. A second, though, is what, if any, impact it has on other companies, actually, rather than helping them because they're able to implement it successfully. But what happens if perhaps what they do is essentially rendered less valuable because AI can come in and replace a lot of what they're accomplishing right now? And I'm not sure what that will be. It may be that some of the companies do well, but the employee base contracts and the, because certain people are put out of work, potentially financial advisors, though I don't know, you know, it seems as though there's a human element to what we do that's maybe not directly replaceable by artificial intelligence, but I imagine that a lot of professions feel that way. Also, Eric, just on that note, that's not new. That's what other companies like Betterment's been, maybe not using AI, but the whole robo-advisor concept, that's not new at all. I think where you're seeing bigger disruption is, you know, with this writer strike, a lot of the writer strike that's going on right now has been because the studios aren't willing to say they won't use AI to replace writers. And if the studio is not willing to do that, where do they want to go? AI is cheaper. Why did reality TV do so well in that space? It's cheaper, right? So I can, I can definitely see disruption in many industries. And I think IBM was like 30,000 or 8,000 employees were going to be I think it was 30,000 employees they expect to be replaced. The numbers are staggering. We shared them on our last episode where they expect AI to displace more jobs than the total population of the United States globally. This is a McKinsey study, greater displacement than the, literally the population of the United States now. And we mentioned last week, for those of you who listened to it, it's a repeat, but Displaced doesn't mean you, it means you may lose that job, but you've got to do something else, right? And to support the technology. But I'm sorry, Eric, I went on a tangent. I'll let you continue. <laughs> oh, no, I think that is totally reasonable. And actually, I think that is the, that's the wonder, if you will, of innovation and, and in a market economy is that something new arises and it, it offers an improvement that people turn to. And as a result, the, you know, what was, considered once upon a time necessary is now less valuable. And so it's replaced. Yeah. So I think that innovation and the growth that it comes with it, even if it does hurt my industry, I want to say that not because I'm somehow concerned that it's especially going to be zeroing in on what we do, but if it were to do that, you know, I guess I'd say, Hey, well then 
investors potentially or those seeking financial planning are the winners from that because if it can be accomplished better for them, well, three cheers for three cheers for consumer sovereignty. So, but it, coming back to the shorter term impacts potentially on the market, Roshan, I don't know whether to assume to expect that there will be a, an abrupt reversal, just as you pointed out was true in EV and cannabis. I, it could very well be that um, it could very well be that this is a sustained rally in those companies that are able to market this technology as well as to harness this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my take is pretty similar. To yours, Eric. I guess the couple points that I would add to say if AI might have the same sort of crash that cannabis space had, that EVs had. Even though I really didn't follow those particularly too much, though. But you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. How I think it might be different. What you mentioned, Roshan, that these are just well-established companies that are experiencing this rally. Where I'd say it might be different this time, where they're probably most likely will be fewer losers compared to the cannabis and EV space. Cause I, I do think around that time, there were a lot of new companies coming out in the scene. I mean, the IPO market was extremely hot at that time where now you're not seeing if at all the same degree of new companies trying to capitalize on the new, let's just say the new thing that's coming out where a lot of them just ran out of money, went out of business and you saw it really crash, and there was just a lot of them. Whereas the AI space, it's more concentrated, well-established companies where you could see fewer losers, which will help on the downside. But I definitely, it's going to be something I'll continue to monitor. But that's how I see it's a little bit more different. Well-established companies, there's not as many that are experiencing the rally out been in the past. I guess there's one aspect of what you said there, Roshan, which I, or Adrian, I mean, it's not to say that those companies can't pivot, but at least the initial concern was that some of the companies who derive much of their revenue from ad-based, search-based ad revenues could be, their business model could be deeply undermined if chat GBT, let's say, is out there doing all the work for people and so that they don't really have to go search websites and run across ads. And the big names there would include companies like Alphabet as well as Meta. Yeah, and well, I mean, and Alphabet is up 41% this year and Meta is up a hundred something percent this year, 117.5% this year. I think at some point, we, I didn't want to interrupt you earlier, but we had a good, multiple good moments to say, please consult your advisor. This is not advice. We're just having an interesting conversation about the markets. We're naming some specific stocks that have driven the markets up but this year, but that's all we're talking about them for, them driving the markets up. We're not saying buy. We're not saying sell. We just found a data point worth researching and discussing. And as you heard me earlier, my research made me question the validity of it. I'll actually expand on that a little bit. I would view, from what I've seen with market breadth, I would not, I think that as always is one of multiple things you've got to look at. Right. So if you look at the overall economy right now and Adrian mentioned the recession and Eric, we said how a year ago you, you mentioned you thought it'd be mild, but you know, there are still economic risks out there. You could fast forward and the markets could have a complete unexpected shock like we did with COVID and go down. And then this market breadth statistic would be accurate. Right. The markets what in the set would be coincidentally accurate. 
right? It wasn't the breath. It was the external shock that caused it. So there's a lot that goes into it. But I do think you've got to look at multiple indicators. This is just one of them that is very popular right now because it's got negative sentiment on a historical level. Another data point I saw is that only 23% of the S&P 500 outperformed the broad index in May. That's the lowest of any month in data history going back to 86, according to Bank of America, right? So that's why they're talking about it, because there's a historical context here. There was another one, not since 98, 99 has large tech so materially outperformed small cap stocks. So I think the reason it's making news is because you've got these things similar to inflation last year when we were talking about it, highest inflation since the 80s, right? So you've got these huge, these huge milestones they're crossing or levels of risk. I think that's why it's a conversation. And I don't, I started with this with a disclosure, but I don't think you can use this as a, as a sole decision point. I think you've got to expand what you're looking into to make a decision or contact an advisor. I know three good ones that'd be happy to talk to you right now. Right. Well, the parallels that you just drew, as we highlighted earlier in the show, to the tech bubble are eerie. I would say, at the very least, that doesn't. I don't know that they're. I don't know that they're germane. Honestly, in this particular case, if you might remember what people were paying for, and the multiples on valuations in the late '90s, in some cases, were just people were denying that valuation made sense any longer. And I, and I thought, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting take. I don't know how long that's going to last. In this case, the valuations are very, very high. If we were to look at the valuations of some of the tech names that you just mentioned, I think it's the, if the market as a whole is at about a little bit above 20 right now on a price to earnings multiple, then I, some of these names are about twice that right at this stage. So that doesn't mean that they should be at the similar price to earnings level as the rest of the market because of the reasons we've discussed before, the discounted cash flow model that oftentimes drives the valuations of these companies is predicated on tremendous revenues growing five and 10 years out as a result of the innovations that are being made now, which isn't the case necessarily in a lot of the other slower growing companies. But it is nevertheless, as you pointed out, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a contrast or a comp- point of comparison with, of high interest to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I'm not hearing, uh, you, when you mentioned the tech bubble, I remember the things like this time it's different, or as you said, valuations don't matter, or, or you know, Buffett doesn't know what he's doing, all of these, all of these signals of potential time. I'm not really hearing that right now. Yeah, not hearing that. Well, guys, I don't really have much more to offer on this topic. Is there anything more that either of you would want to say? Well, the only other thing, I guess it's a question for both of you. This was actually a conversation I was having with someone where this year, as we know, well, with some particular companies have just done really well. And I guess they're just, some people might be wondering just, should I be patient? Should I wait on the sideline? I know we gave the disclaimer that everybody's situation is different. You'd have to have a conversation to see what your situation is. But this may be bringing up the topic, should I be dollar cost averaging into this? Should I just do a lump sum? Or I guess what would be your kind of take on that or your outlook or just be patient or wait? What would be your kind of standpoint on that? I know you don't know the situation, 
we gave the disclaimer before, but what would be your sort of take with that thing with the rally that we've been seeing? I would say stay diversified. It very well may be that, you know, some of the valuations that you're seeing here or in the tech space in particular are warranted. It may be that some of them are because there could be explosive growth ahead. And again, this is not a recommendation for or against any stock, but it's just to use examples of things that are actually happening right now. I was talking about distorted or at least <clears throat> abnormal or let's see, maybe that's even not the right term. Valuations that are not characteristic of the rest of the market. NVIDIA's price to earnings value ratio right now is over 200. Agreed. I looked at that, but I want to point out what I thought when I saw that is, well, that's a fraction of what Amazon's has been at many times, right? So not justifying or taking away from the valuation, just saying if they're really at the cutting edge of this industry that you know, can't function without them, or maybe that is what you were saying. Maybe that valuation is justified. I don't know, but it is ridiculously high, but it's not unprecedented compared to you know, what I'll call like similar, similar opportunities in the past. Oh, well, I'll definitely agree with what you just said there, because the Amazon's price earnings ratio at this moment is 296. So it's, it is, you're absolutely right about that. But it does, one has to ask, even though no one's saying it this time, is it in fact that the, that these, there is this just denial about valuations? Is it perhaps? I don't know. I honestly don't know. The forward PE is another thing that is a slightly different number just to explain the difference. In forward PE, people are making guesses about future earnings. And if the earnings are substantially higher than the trailing earnings have been, then the current price against those anticipated earnings can be significantly smaller. And in, in the case of NVIDIA, for example, that would be 50, you know, just over 50 to one as opposed to 200 to one. So on the, and the same thing was true with Amazon. Instead of being three, nearly 300 to one, it's 70 to one. So these are, even if you grant that those expectations of future earnings are warranted, and maybe they are, you'd still have to say those are surprisingly high compared, or at least distinctively high compared to the overall rest of the market. A company, for example, like Microsoft at this point is, has a trailing PE of 35 about and a forward P of about 30, that seems to me to be more understandable. But I'm, again, not saying sell Amazon or NVIDIA and buy Microsoft or anything like that. My point is strictly that it makes sense, I think, to remain diversified. That's a tough one to argue against, right? It definitely makes sense to, to remain diversified. I agree with, it, with that. To Adrian, to your question, my thought as I was researching this, and I mentioned that multiple times, I was actually a little bit disappointed with this, my excitement was high when we started the topic as my research went deeper, I got a little disappointed. But what the conclusion I came to is really, if you're looking for long term, good stocks and good investments, or if you're looking at being a long term investor in the index, this is really kind of meaningless, which is why I was said earlier, is this just a good topic of conversation? Or is there actually conclusions you can draw from it? And it on its own, I don't think there are conclusions you can draw from it, but I think it is a data point you can use while heading down your research path, though. So, so I wouldn't say the prep and research was a complete waste of time by any means, but I would say it, it did not give me 
as much information or as much clarity as I was hoping to gain. Well put. It's an interesting topic and we'll, I'm sure, have more to say about markets and in the coming weeks and quarters. Yes. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you for joining us again. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. We'll be back next week. Please like, subscribe, give us five stars, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.